Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Uh, Well, we are in the beginning of our brand new series on Lent, and I am really excited about this. As you just saw, we did the Stations of the Cross, and you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, why are we celebrating Lent? Isn't that something that the Catholic Church or the mainline denomination celebrates? Isn't that that time of year when weird people put soot on their head? Well, yes and yes, but Lent is really a time of preparation. It's the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to the Saturday before Easter, and is really designed to be a time of preparation for our hearts and minds as we prepare to receive the good news of the gospel. And so we are going to be able, over these next couple weeks, looking at the miracles of Jesus, his power and his authority, and the ways in which he demonstrated that, things like healing, things like delivering a girl um, from death, casting out demons, ultimately preparing our hearts for the power of his greatest triumph over death. So with that being said, we're going to jump in today. Um, We are going to be talking about Jesus's miracle of healing from Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 and 13. Uh, But before we get there, let me say this. It probably doesn't take much to believe that we live in a time that is very broken. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Uh, We live in a world that is very broken. You can certainly turn on the news, begin to scroll through your social media feed, and it doesn't take long to understand that our world is indeed broken. I get that. Many of you sitting in the audience today would say, I get that too. But do you know somebody who doesn't get that? Kids. Kids don't oftentimes understand that we live in a broken world. And as parents, you probably understand this because there are things that they, um, when things don't go the way they want, they don't handle that kind of disappointment very well. Oftentimes, kids are used to getting things their way. And they really struggle when life doesn't go the way they want to. There's this deep sense of injustice that kids feel when they don't when life doesn't turn out the way they want it to and one of the things that kids can't oftentimes understand in that moment is that we as adults or perhaps you felt this feeling as a parent we can't fix all those things we would love to we love our kids but we can't fix them so for example say one morning you get up and your son or daughter comes to you and says hey i want a pop tart And you go into the cupboard, and there are no Pop-Tarts. Now, you can do your best to try and explain this to your kid, right? I'm sorry, son or daughter, we have no Pop-Tarts. I I don't have the ingredients in this house to make this weird puff pastry that has no nutritional value whatsoever. I can't do it. But for that child in their little mind, it's hard for them to understand why there are no Pop-Tarts in the house, and more importantly, why you as the adult cannot provide that for them. Because kids are so used to getting all their needs met. They grow up, um, and as they grow up, 
of course, much like us, and we understand today, the fact that we live in a broken world. And sometimes things in this world cannot be fixed. There are broken things in this world that we cannot change. And of course, they'll go through things that are much harder than not being able to get a Pop-Tart. Of course, they're going to face things that are much more difficult than not just getting their way as a child. As they get older, we know that we encounter greater depths of brokenness as adults. We encounter handicaps in our kids and in our friends. We encounter addictions. We encounter broken marriages. We encounter death. We encounter things in this life that cannot be fixed. And sometimes these kids, and us as well, who are really just big kids at heart, go to other people and other things to try and get those things fixed. These major problems that show up as brokenness in our world, but the truth is, even when we sometimes go to other people to try and help us to fix these issues of brokenness, they can't help us. And usually when we go to these people and ask them or places or things and present this brokenness to them and say, here, help me with this. Oftentimes when they can't respond, it's because either they're unwilling or they're unable to do so. They're unwilling or they're unable to do so. So if, I, if you were to bring a problem to me and I were to say this morning, I am willing to fix that, but I am unable to do so, that's no good. So you, I could say to you this morning, hey, church, guess what? I want to pay for all your kids' college. You'd be saying, all right, all right. But the truth is, I'm unable to do that. And that would just make me a real-life Michael Scott. Okay? So if you haven't watched The Office, here's your homework. Go home, read your Bible, but then watch The Office. Okay? Educate yourself. In that situation, I may have the willingness to do something, but I am unable to actually do it. And of course, the opposite is also true. If you are able, but you are unwilling to help, that's no good as well. Comcast is an excellent example of this. Comcast has the ability to fix my internet and cable issues. They are unwilling. Have you ever called a Comcast customer service rep? They are unwilling to help. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're deeply offended because you work at Comcast, I'm not sorry. You need to do better. I'm getting off track here. <laughs> uh, yes. So it happens in our text today that we are going to encounter a man who is very well acquainted with brokenness in this world. And this particular man in Matthew, as to this point, has yet to be able to find someone who is willing and able to help him. That is, of course, until he meets Jesus. And so I think the reason this study is beneficial for us is it will help us to realize that when we encounter brokenness in this world, we need someone who is both willing and able to help us with that. And we have to be able to approach the right person with that brokenness, just as the centurion in the text approached the Lord Jesus. 
And not only do we have to know who we're approaching, we have to know how we're going to approach him. And so my prayer for us this morning, church, as we get into this message, is that as we read the story of this centurion, we'll see Jesus as both the person that we bring our brokenness to, but we'll also learn from his example the right way and the posture in which we approach him. Because if we're going to have a conversation with Jesus about brokenness, if we're going to talk with Jesus and request that he does something about that, we have to do so in a way that honors him. And so the main thing that I want you to walk out of here today, if there's nothing else that you catch, catch this. Jesus is the person that we can bring our brokenness to. Faith is bringing brokenness to the one who's able to do, able and willing to do something about it. So talking about faith and healing, faith is bringing that brokenness again to someone who is able and willing. So we're going to look at this man who had a situation. And as we look at this man who's bringing this brokenness to Jesus, I want you to pay attention to two things. Say two things. Two things. Okay. And you'll see this very clearly as we get into this story about this man. I want you to pay attention to his humility, and I want you to pay attention to his faith. Pay attention to his humility, and pay attention to his faith. So as I said earlier, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5 and 13. When you get there in your Bibles, if you're turning, um, if you have physical Bibles, or you're getting there on your app, say, I got it. All right. If you don't have it, say, hold up. All right, I'm going forward then. So here is what God's word says, beginning in verse 5. It says, Then when Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed with terrible pain. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of superior officers, and I have the authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said this, I tell you the truth. I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And so I tell, and so I tell you, sorry, phone should have been silence. And so I tell you this, that many Gentiles from, will come from all over the world, from the east and to the west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, for uh, those whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you have believed it will happen. And so this young servant was healed that same hour. So let me just give you some background on what's happening in this story. Jesus has just completed the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember, we're here with us late last year, we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember from that series, this sermon or this message that Jesus gave was his most famous message of his ministry. And in that message, Jesus literally takes the principles that the Jewish people believed about the kingdom of God and turned them on their head. 
And he starts talking about all these things like um, truth, uh, true blessedness. He starts talking about loving your enemies and enduring persecution. He gives this kind of new kingdom ethic as he's talking to his audience. And then right after he gives that sermon, and I love this about Jesus, he doesn't stay on the mountain and just pontificate. He comes down the mountain and he begins to show the Jewish people what this new kingdom is going to look like. He's going to show what it means to have the king of kings on earth what it is going to be like to have the kingdom of heaven breaking forth into the world. And so he goes and he's going to show them what that looks like. And so it says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, that when Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. So again, Jesus is coming down the mountain. And I want you to just picture this scene for a moment in your mind's eye. Okay, go with me here. Have you ever seen a commercial or a TV show where you see one person walking and there's a, mass, a multitude of people following behind him, right? Masses of people, one person leading the way and there's just masses of people behind him. That's what's happening in this moment. Scripture says that when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, the people looked at him and said, that man preaches with authority and they followed him. And so Jesus comes down on this mountain and there's this mass of people following him. And that's when this soldier approaches him. And he says, Lord, my servant lies paralyzed and is suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I heal him? Shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, this is a remarkable request for a couple of reasons. This Roman centurion is an army commander. He's a military man. He would be accustomed to or akin to a U.S. sergeant in our U.S. military today. And he is a commander of some hundred soldiers at minimum at his disposal. But even more important than the fact that he's a military commander, we learn from this text that he is also a Gentile, which is incredible because a Gentile is a, for those who may not have heard that before, it's another word for somebody who's non-Jewish. And this is another person who is approaching Jesus that looks like somebody who stands outside of what the Jews believe to be the kingdom of God. And so here is this Gentile approaching Jesus. And it seems like we know from a parallel text in Luke chapter 7 that it says he had heard about Jesus. He had heard that this man was healing. And so he comes to Jesus with this brokenness. He comes to Jesus with his brokenness. I heard you could heal. This is the brokenness. Except he's not coming on behalf of himself. We learn that he's coming on behalf of who? A servant, a servant. And so this Roman centurion, this Gentile who had authority as a Roman officer over the Jewish people approaches Jesus in humility. He pleads, it says he pleaded with Jesus and asks, and Jesus responds and says, am I to come and heal him? 
which again is another remarkable statement about our Lord, that Jesus was willing to go to the house of this Gentile man in a society, a Jewish culture, that believed that Gentiles resided outside of God's plan. And yet Jesus crossed cultural barriers and said, I will come to your house. And so the centurion says, no, man, I'm unworthy for you to even come under my roof. Now, I want you to catch this. Catch this. He says, I'm unworthy to have you come under my roof. And this is the proper response for someone who really sees God clearly. A sense of our own unworthiness. A sense of our own unworthiness. Because not only do we esteem the greatness of Christ, but we also know that we are unworthy in comparison to him. Not only do we esteem the greatness of Jesus, but when we approach him, we understand that we are unworthy in comparison to who he is. I'm reminded um, of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he is in the presence of God, he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming down to be baptized, declares, I am not even worthy to tie this man's sandals. This humility that the centurion shows is the right response. And this is the humility that we should approach God with. When it comes to bringing brokenness before our Lord, these situations that we can't fix, we need to know that, yes, Jesus wants us in one hand to come to him and present that brokenness that we have, but with the other hand, hold out an understanding that we are unworthy of receiving anything from God. And anything that we receive from Jesus is not because of what we've done, but very much because of his graciousness and his mercy to us. Church, sometimes, myself included, we struggle with gratitude and contentment when it comes to our faith. And I would suggest to you this morning that that's because we forget that we're unworthy. I would suggest that when we feel ungratitude or a lack of contentment in our faith, it's because we forget that we're unworthy. Because when we don't get something from God that we desperately want, our response should be something to this nature. God, maybe, maybe God will be gracious to give me another thing that I don't deserve. I didn't get what God wanted, what I wanted, but maybe God will shine his face on me. Maybe God will be gracious to me and give me something else that I don't deserve. But instead, what's our response? We tend to think what? God is withholding something from me that I rightly deserve. God is keeping back from me something that I rightly deserve. And we hear all the time this talk in our day and age about entitlement. That is entitlement of our faith. The belief that we deserve something from God. And entitlement is the enemy of any kind of contentment in our faith. So we'll continue to struggle with gratitude and contentment in our faith as long as we uh, fail to understand that every single gift that we receive in this life is a gift from Jesus. So the centurion approaches Jesus not with pride. He approaches with humility. He approaches with humility. And when I see the centurion pleading to Jesus, I'm reminded of David in Psalm 8 where he says, who is man that you would even be mindful 
of me. When we approach Christ, we do so with our brokenness, but we do so from a position of humility. We do so from a position of humility. And in Matthew... um, continues then in verse 8 and 9, and he says this, But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. So in response to Jesus' appeal to come to his house, he first says, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. I'm unworthy to even have you under my roof. And then he responds secondly by saying that you don't need to come to my house because all you have to do is just simply speak the word for my servant to be healed. Now, It's amazing. This man understands something incredible about the power of Jesus. This man understands something incredible about Jesus' power to heal. Jesus understood, or he understood that Jesus' power was not limited to location. Jesus does not work like a remote control. Okay? I, I get too far away from Jesus and my remote control doesn't work anymore, right? Jesus is not limited by a range. And so this man understood that and he says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house to touch my servant because you can simply speak the word and he will be healed. But as humans today, we struggle with this idea, at least I do in my understanding of my relationship to God. And so I was thinking about this. Not Last year, my wife, God bless her, got me these um, earbuds, these wireless earbuds. And they have changed the way I work out. Now, I don't know for any of you who are working out fanatics or anybody who does any working out, if you've ever tried to work out with wired earbuds, it is horrible. It is awful. The struggle is real, y'all, when it comes to those wired earbuds, okay? Like you'll be working out and your phone falls out of your pocket and it pops the earbuds out of your ear. Or... You know, you're working out, you're sweating, you're perspiring, and the, the, the wires are getting all wetty, wet, and they're sticking to your face, and I mean, it's just all kinds of trouble. And I know, listen, I know this is first world problems. I get that, but I'm trying to make a point here, okay? Because these wireless earbuds, as amazing as they are, they have limited range. And so at the gym that I work out at, there is a bike, one single spin bike. And so when that puppy is open, I take my phone and I go and I slap that down on that bike and that is my bike. I'm reserving that bike. You cannot touch it. That is my bike for working out. And then I walk away to go get the rest of my workout stuff. But what happens is I get further away, right? I'm listening to my music and all of a sudden it starts getting choppy. I'm listening to my Peloton instructor and he's getting me all excited about working out and all of a sudden just cutting out, cutting out because the range is limited in those earbuds. But this man understands that there's something, that there's nothing that's going to limit the signal of Jesus' power. Jesus is not limited in his ability of what he was able to do. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't have a jurisdiction. Jesus is all-powerful, and all of creation is at his command. And so the centurion says this, he reasons it this way, look, Jesus, I command soldiers, 
And the truth is, I don't have to go everywhere with them to make something happen. I simply say, go and do this, and they do it. Go and do that, and they do it. I tell my servant to come, and he comes. And so he reasons that, Lord, you do not have to show up even at my house. You have the authority to be able to speak that. But where this man had to speak to send people to do his bidding, Jesus just spoke his word and did his bidding. And that is the same word that holds the universe together. The same word that God holds the universe together. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that God holds the universe together by his word and power. And so this man understands that Jesus has this authority and he responds this way, just speak the word. And it says that Jesus is amazed by this man's faith. Now stop. Think about this with me for a second. Jesus was amazed. That is an amazing statement in and of itself. There are only two times in Scripture where we see that Jesus is amazed, and they both center on issues of faith. The first time Jesus is amazed is by a lack of faith in the people in his hometown. And yet here again, we see that Jesus is amazed by this man's faith. And what exactly is it that amazes him? I mean, it's not like this man walked up and Jesus was like, uh-huh, I see you at shirt with those kicks, man. I'm amazed. That looks good. Or he didn't say, man, you are such an eloquent speaker. I'm amazed. He doesn't say, you know what? You command a hundred soldiers. I am amazed. No, Jesus looks at that and says, I see your faith and I am amazed. Those are the kind of things that draw the attention of the God of the universe. Not pride, but humility. Not self-reliance, but faith. Jesus responds to our faith. And it's not because we're doing something we can't do. It's not because we've impressed him with these amazing feats or works that we're doing. But because it's an acknowledgement of what we can't do. It's an acknowledgement of what we can't do on our own. And that's exactly the way that Jesus asks us to come to him in this place of brokenness that we understand that we cannot change this. The centurion came to Jesus with his servant who was sick and he understood that he was powerless in that moment to do anything to change that situation. And yet he came to Christ. And so Jesus wants us to come to him to acknowledge that we are broken and that we desperately need him. And it says that Jesus is amazed by this man's faith and that he knew that Jesus only had to speak a word. Church, I believe that we have a very misguided view of faith oftentimes. We, trend, we, we tend to treat faith like a genie in a bottle, right? Um, it goes something like this. I didn't study for this test, high school students, but... I believe in faith that I'm going to pass. That's not faith, that's foolishness. For other people, it might be, man, I haven't been to work in months, but by faith, I believe that there's going to be money in my bank account. That's not faith, that's foolishness. And the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about is often very different from what we do. 
And by the way, this is also very true of how we, what we do to God. We demand things from God and we call it faith. We demand things of God and we say it is faith, but faith is not giving God an assignment and then holding him to it. Faith is believing in who God says he is and believing that God will do what he says he will do. And if we are clear that's what faith is, then we can also be clear of what it means to persevere in our faith and to hold on to it. So some of you this morning might be saying, I'm struggling with my faith in Jesus. And it has less to do with persevering and holding on to faith and more about the fact that you believed and, and uh, asked Jesus for things that he never said he would do. You've asked Jesus for things that he never said he would do. And oftentimes when we get to, to messages like this in Matthew chapter 8, we look at this and we say it's some kind of prescription that God will always heal us anytime we have faith. And if we approach Scripture that way, we're going to struggle because faith is believing in who God says he is and what God says he will do, not taking portions and snippets out of the Bible to fit what we want from Jesus. So for this man, he heard about Jesus being a healer, and he believed that. He fed his faith with this knowledge that Jesus was a healer. But some 2,000 years later, we feed our faith with the wider testimony of who Jesus is and who God is. We feed our faith the same way, much, the same way we build relationships with other people, by building a track record and building trust. For example, my wife, Dawn, I love my wife. We have been married for almost five years. And in those five years, I have gotten to know very well who she is. And I know from the bottom of my heart that my wife cares deeply for me and takes care of our family. I know from the bottom of my heart the character and the integrity, the hard worker that she is. She has a track record with me. And because of that, I trust her implicitly. And the way that we're able to see God's record, his track record, is right here. It's right here in God's word. Where we see God time and time again be gracious, be holy, be good, and be faithful. It's in this book, as we open it up, we see that the God of the universe promises never to break a promise to us. And it's in this book that we read how the story ends. And spoiler alert, church. Jesus wins. And so this is how we feed our faith through the Bible. So even if we make this profession of faith in Christ, we get in trouble because oftentimes we think we've made this profession, I've made a, a one-time profession of faith in Jesus, and we think we're done. We think that's all we have to do to take care of our faith, but we're in danger when we do that because our faith has to be persevered. And God will keep us in our faith but we need to feed ourselves by his word. And that's how we keep ourselves. We treat our faith oftentimes, though, like something we just kind of toss in the corner and say it's going to be fine, right? Nope, here's my faith. I hope it's okay. Toss it in a corner. And as I was thinking about this again, and I'm going to use my wife as an example because we live together and it's got all the kind of, I learned from life, right? Um, and I love my wife. I just said she's got these amazing characteristics and abilities, but one of them is not tending to plants, okay? She is a gifted musician, writer, all that stuff, 
but she, and she loves her summer flowers, but y'all, she murders them. She murders them. Taking care of plants is not one of her gifts. And so I've often thought, you know, maybe we just need to get plastic plants in our house to prevent any more death from our beloved flowers. But you know what the great thing is about plastic plants? You don't have to take care of them. You can literally walk away from a, from a plant, plastic plant for a year, don't even acknowledge that it exists, and the great thing about that plant is when you come back in a year, it's going to look exactly the same way it did when you left. Maybe a little more dusty, but it's going to look the same way. And sometimes we treat our faith that same way. We think, hey, I made this one-time profession of Jesus, and then we put our faith up on a shelf. We don't water it. We don't nurture it. We don't take care of it. And we assume that it's just going to be fine. And then when we bump into brokenness, when we encounter situations in life that can't be fixed, we wonder why it is that our faith struggles. Why is it that our faith feels weak when God has told us how we are supposed to keep our faith? We are to keep looking at his track record. We are to keep gathering with his people. We are to keep looking at who he is. And so the story then continues again in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. And it's going to get weird here, y'all, so buckle up, okay? Jesus says this, turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I have, seen, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, for those whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying this to the people of Israel and you have to remember that the Israelites were a people that had been blessed by God. They had been part of God's redemptive history. They had received revelation from God all the way from uh, Abraham to Moses to Isaac to Jacob to King David. And now Jesus, God had been working in the history of Israel up into this point. And yet Jesus says that amongst the Israelites, as he's been walking around and ministering, he has not seen faith like this in any other person like this Gentile has. And he is saying that if you are assuming that your invitation to the banquet of heaven is based on your ethnic identity, you are gravely mistaken. Because the invitation to that banquet, the invitation to heaven is based on faith. It's based on faith. Faith is how we get that invitation. And here's what he's saying, that people are going to be coming from the east and from the west and I just picture this beautiful picture of people flocking to the Lord Jesus as he draws them to him in faith. And it will be this faith that will be the difference between those that are reclining at the banquet table with the patriarchs and with Jesus and those who are cast into outer darkness. Now let me say this real quick. This is uncomfortable, but I'm going to say it. We don't like to talk about hell in our churches. But Jesus talked about hell, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it either. Not as a club to beat people over the head into fear, but Jesus says that this is a literal place. 
And there's a lot of debate within the church about what is hell. And I've, we've had that conversation. Jason and I have that conversation all the time. But Jesus knew that it was a literal place and that every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will someday stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and either based on faith will be granted entrance into the kingdom or will be cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that gnashing of teeth is this idea of pain. And I don't know what that pain looks like, but Jesus says that it will be so painful that we will, those people that are caught in that darkness will weep for eternity. Weep for eternity, continually, nonstop, crying and weeping. And as scary as that thought is, the good news is that Jesus, by his power, is not limited to just healing our physical aliments. Jesus, by his power and authority, forgives our sins. Jesus, by his power and authority, helps us deliver from the bondage of sin. Jesus opens people's eyes and brings them to himself from the east and from the west. And as I look here today, as I look across this audience, as I see us, we are part of that group of people that Jesus has drawn in from all over the world. And let me say this too this morning, church. If your view of heaven is that you are going to be sitting, and I'm, cultural context here, if your view of heaven is that when you get there, it's going to look like you looked, all the people there are going to look like you look, you are going to be gravely mistaken. Because the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that it is a multi-ethnic community. And we don't see that here right now. And, and even mosaic, but our heart and our prayer is that that will be reflective in this church as, as it grows and moves forward because that is the kingdom of God. And all of us at all times are in danger of falling into that, being cast in that outer darkness because of sin. And God will judge us because of sin unless we call upon Jesus in faith. Church, the scripture is clear that we don't get that invitation into heaven by our own works, and by our own merit. It comes strictly through faith. And so Jesus is saying to those with this faith, those are the ones who will be saved from this outer darkness. Now, all of us know different people who are good people, people who have the best intentions and a good heart, people who say, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want to experience eternity with him but we know those same people turn around and look to earn their way into heaven. We hear things like, man, I, I go to church. I have grew up in the church. I read my Bible. I do stuff, right? I'm a good person. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is this. It's not based on being a good person. It's not based on reading your Bible. It's based on faith and faith in Christ alone. Church, you may be able to go out there and find somebody who is willing to try and help you with the brokenness that you present to them. But here's the truth. You will never find anybody other than Jesus who is willing and able to help you with that brokenness. As Romans 5, 7 through 8, it says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Nobody 
is willing to lay down their life for our sinners, for those who hated them. But Jesus did. And that is the hope that we have, church. That as we encounter this brokenness in our world, as we encounter these different um, things that look like they can't be fixed, I don't know where you are at today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know that as human beings, we all have those different areas of brokenness. But here's the good news. Not only is Jesus willing and able, but we no longer have to search for somebody who is. We know who he is. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, man, there are areas in my life that are broken and they're not fixed yet, but you don't have to go searching. We just have to wait for the one who will bring redemption into our lives and into eternity. And on that, we can trust and believe in Jesus. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.